Hello, everybody. You are listening to You Are Good. I'm one of your co-hosts, Alex Steed. We'll be joined by Sarah Marshall momentarily. You Are Good is a feelings podcast about movies, but rather than breaking it down in a traditional sense, we talk about the feelings the movie evokes in us and maybe in other people. And we wanted to talk about Sleepless in Seattle in large part because, or I guess Jeffrey Craner wanted to talk about it, but also this is a movie uh, that we've been talking about a bit to each other, Sarah and I, and we try to keep the episodes seasonal, but... um. You know, we really want to talk about this. We're going to say it's a it's a Christmas in July episode and, you know, play the anachronism a little bit and then realize upon watching the movie that it really largely takes place in January, February, <laughs> which is like just not really a time that movies take place in unless that's part of the plot. Our guest today is uh, we'll hear more from him momentarily, but it's Jeffrey Craner. Jeffrey is one of the creators of Welcome to Night Vale, which is just an incredibly well-loved podcast. Jeffrey's also a co-host of Random Number Generator Horror Podcast Number 9, a horror podcast that Sarah has appeared on and talked about ticks. <laughs> Jeffrey's also an author and has written the book The Faceless Old Woman Who Secretly Lives in Your Home. I hope she doesn't live in my home. Um, <laughs> um, a couple of housekeeping notes. Thank you so much for your patience last week. We didn't have a new episode. Carolyn and I were at a music camp in Maine where we were both working. And we thought that we could get an episode out and then realized that 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 was just not going to happen. That a music camp is not exactly the place that's best for producing a podcast. (laughs) So thank you so much for your patience with that. And I just want to let you know, this show is made possible by Knack Factory, which is a commercial and creative content video production company based in Portland, Maine, but does work throughout these United States. If you need video made, produced, consulted on whatever it may be. Get in touch with the folks at Knack Factory. And I should tell you, because someone, you know, I'm glad I got this feedback that it sounds like I'm saying Nap Factory, as in you take a nap. It is K-N-A-C-K Factory. Like you have a knack for something. Knack Factory. There we go. Hope Maybe I've clarified something for many people here. K-N-A-C-K Factory. They'll make your videos. (laughs) It's also made possible by you. Thank you so much to our Patreon supporters. Patreon.com slash you are good. Thank you for making this show possible. Over there, we have uh, other conversations that are a a bit broader. Uh, We had a conversation about the Fast and the Furious, uh, the last go, and we're going to do Point Break next. We have a lot of of ideas for what's coming up in the next uh, handful of weeks. And uh, yeah, you can find bonus chats at patreon thank you so much if you're supporting us there and just so you know we have playlists that are come to each of these episodes you can find them linked in the show notes and they're just songs that uh we think about when we think about not just the movie but the uh conversation we had about the movie i think that's all you need from us right now before we dive right into this conversation about the 1993 nora efron classic sleepless in seattle Turn on your radio. What? The kid is on. You've got me listening to this garbage. Go. And just a few questions. Are you sleeping at night? He doesn't sleep at all. How do you know that? I live here, Dad. Maggie. Uh, my wife. She made everything beautiful. And it's it's just tough this, this time of year. I mean, any kid needs a mother. 
Could it be that you need someone just as much as Jonah does? Dad, can we go to New York City for Valentine's Day? What? Annie Reed from Baltimore wants to meet us at the top of the Empire State Building on Valentine's Day. There is no way that we are going on a plane to meet some woman who could be a crazy, sick lunatic. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? You wouldn't let me. Well, I saw it, and it scared the shit out of me. It scared the shit out of every man in America. It's you. It's me. I saw you in the street. Are you Annie? Yes. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How's it going on your end? I hear it's going to be hot. It's going to be hot. This is all I'm talking about anymore. I just got patio furniture, and it is allegedly going to be 108 degrees in Portland on Saturday, according to my weather app. And I just want to say that it didn't used to do that here, and that's why a lot of people moved here. Well, fortunately, we have a we have a movie today that's going to help cool you down a little bit. Oh, that was beautiful, Alex. Yeah, well, it takes place in that comfortable little spot that no movies take place in, yeah. which is January, February. In Baltimore. <laughs> in Baltimore. It's chilly. <laughs> There's something very 1993 about, like, if you were to go into a studio today and be like, 1993, January. Baltimore, people would be like, ah, yes, people are dealing drugs on an app like that probably fake bestseller said. And it's like, no, it's about a woman with a pink house falling in love. It sure is. It sure is. And you go in and you think you're going to be spending a lot of time in another city, which you do. But this this just hops all around our beautiful country in the early 90s. Sarah, we have a, a fabulous special guest. So do you want to just tell us, first of all, what we're watching? And then second of all, who we're watching it with? Today is such a special day. Because we are watching Sleepless in Seattle, and we're talking about it with Jeffrey Craner, who I realize just now is like Nora Ephron, the creator of a fictional world oh. that I have spent a lot of time with, with my mom, <laughs> in a time when life is really depressing. That's beautifully put. Hi, Jeffrey. Uh, hi, Alex. Hi, Sarah. I'm so glad to get to watch this movie again. This is really nice, going back through the uh, the Meg Ryan trilogy this past <laughs> week. I feel like it's never a bad time to watch Sleepless in Seattle. Like, if you're in a hospital waiting for test results, it's probably a good movie to have on. Yeah, I think so. Jeffrey, can you just tell us quickly about, about yourself, your Nora Ephron parallel universe, and what your history is with Sleepless in Seattle before Sarah tells us what happens in this movie? Sure. I am a writer. I do the podcast Welcome to Night Vale and Within the Wires. I love movies. I also do a horror podcast with my friend Cecil uh, where we cover horror movies, which I'm a bit more squeamish about than he is. <laughs> but I, I grew up really loving comedy. And in high school, I was in high school in the early 90s. And uh, I was definitely around friends where we would watch goofy comedies mostly but i had a very close friend named jeff also named jeff who uh was really into harry connick jr and romantic comedies and big big band music and all the old 50s 60s breakfast at tiffany's all of this stuff that's lovely so this is the type of stuff i would watch with jeff and uh we both got really into sleepless in seattle we both saw it twice in the theater and uh i really adored this movie i love when harry met sally but it's such a different sort of ordeal it's very Nora Ephron the characters are kind of similar in some ways but I just love the 
gentleness of this film and I think if I identify with anybody more more closely uh, it's with Rita Wilson Rita Wilson's <laughs> character and her scene of recollecting an affair to remember it just oh, it, yeah. it made me like tear up the first time I saw it like this like 17 oh, yeah. year old boy just like tearing up and I don't know why I thought maybe because it was funny or sweet but there's something that taps into horror brain about not being able to remember something quite right and watching it now as an adult, there's actually something sort of disturbing about how easily dismissed she is in that conversation as well. Yeah, oh, it's I terrible that too. And I never saw that before. So we've all grown. That's good. Totally. Yeah, I felt that in a hard, hard way. This is the straightest Victor Garber has ever been, aside yeah. from the First Wives Club. <laughs> Garber. In Titanic, he's ship sexual, obviously. He just projects a, a, like a barrage of straight laser, and it's it's a. Uh... <laughs> yeah. Sarah, can you do us a favor? And if someone, for again, for some strange reason, has forgotten what has happened uh-huh. in Sleep, Sleep is in Seattle, because there's no way they haven't they haven't seen it. Maybe there's one person who hasn't seen it, and they're listening to this show right now. Talk to that person. All right, person. Sleepless in Seattle is to romantic comedies, in my opinion, what Mozart's The Marriage of Figaro is to opera. Oh. It is a relatively simple and yet fiendishly difficult to pull off form managed to perfection by Nora Ephron herself. It does the thing that I think 90s, well two things that I think are essential to the the great 90s romantic comedies. A, it presents a situation that if you learned about it in a tabloid, you would be very judgmental and mean. But if you learn about it in a movie and see it through the perspective of the woman who's committing this intense crime basically (laughs) you're like no I get it so while you were sleeping to me is the other great where like she's committing several crimes I think in that movie but we're totally with her and the the crime is that she hunts someone down that she's obsessed with right and then is that how would you describe the crime I think just stalking like I don't know if this is this is probably not criminally technically stalking but I think that like Well, I guess one thing that's happened is that between the last time I saw this movie and now, I've become more sympathetic to the needs of people who sort of accidentally become public figures (laughs) and then have people become fixated on them and fly to where they live and come to their house and follow them. And have one-sided projective conversations at them. (laughs) Yes. And at every other time in my life, I was like, well, yeah, it's pretty weird, but like the movie really sells it and yeah. And now I'm like, oh, no, I don't want anyone doing that to me. And now that doesn't seem like totally out of bounds mm. anymore the way it used to. Like in 2021, we are all Tom Hanks, practically. And so the premise is that it is like very of its time and therefore very predictive of parasocial relationships, I think. The story is that Meg Ryan is playing a woman named Annie Reed who has beautiful hair in a beautiful braid. And she's engaged to a guy named Walter, who's played by Bill Pullman, who's super adorable in a very Bill Pullman way. And so it begins at Christmas when they're in a car convoy to his family's house after having just gone to see her family. And she turns on the radio and she hears the son of Tom Hanks's character calling into a call-in radio show saying that his dad is lonely and needs a new wife because 
his mom, Tom Hanks' wife, died, I think, 18 months ago in movie time. Which, when I was a kid, seemed like a really long time to be bereaved. And now I'm like, oh my god, I've taken longer to deal with breakups, honestly. Yeah, anytime someone's like, get on out there, I'm like, fuck off. Like, his wife <laughs> just died. Yeah. <laughs> a year and a half is the blink of an eye when you're Tom Hanks' age. But he's ready to. And this is really interesting. It's It's like weirder than I ever gave it credit for, I think. Tom Hanks gets on the phone with this radio call-in psychologist who's played by Caroline Aaron, by the way, who's wonderful in everything she's in. And he talks about, like, how he knew he was in love with his wife before she died and how he just, like, knew he, like... And my mom and I, by the way, we've seen this movie together a million times. We quote it a lot. And there are certain words that we just say, like, in the tone of the way they say it in this movie, and one of them is, like, magic. (laughs) the way Tom Hanks says it. Like, if she wants to tell me that, like, I have a really nice patio table, she doesn't say magic. She says magic. <laughs> you know, like, this is a movie that just has, like, sunk into the, like, household culture of our relationship. And so all kinds of women write into the radio station, which forwards him the mail that's like, hi, I'm Patty, and I think you're sexy. I liked it when you talked about your bereavement. And he doesn't really want to choose from the letters, but he does start dating again. He's seeing this woman who he's like, oh, well, I don't know, but, like, you have to compromise. Love isn't about feeling that thing I said on the radio. It's about dating Victoria from work. (laughs) But his son is reading the letters, and he's the one who first reads the letter that Meg Ryan writes and that she doesn't send, but that her friend Rosie O'Donnell sends for her. And he really likes Annie. And this movie is kind of dramatizing, I think, like childlike ideas of love and magic and huge feelings versus adult ideas that claim to be about what love is but are also about compromise and giving up on on some things mm-hmm. and it's really interesting as a romantic comedy where the the two leads like we see a ton of their relationships with other people in their lives and those seem like really great relationships but we also don't see them together until the last one minute and basically what happens is that in the letter Annie proposes that they meet at the top of the Empire State Building at sunset on Valentine's Day which is what happens in her favorite movie An Affair to Remember and the question going into the the climax if you will is will they both show up and that's the movie it's so sweet yeah it's so gentle so jeffrey take me please back to when you were a teenage boy Uh uh-huh and loving this movie because i want to know all about that like that's awesome the comedy in this movie is so interesting and nuanced it's so gentle it's not a what i imagine a teenage boy movie Mm. being and i want to know about what that was like tell us about that as sarah just said something really interesting about watching a romantic comedy where the romantic leads don't ever really meet until Mm -hmm. the final frame like the total amount of dialogue between the two of them is maybe Mm -hmm. 10 words it's like conan yeah Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) i think what sparked me was initially when i saw it just on the romantic comedy side of things i love the music i love the anachronism i love that it fills you with just like when harry met sally it fills you with all of the old-timey 
love of the 1950s and 60s like the really simple sugary type of love and romance uh it's ballroom dancing it's uh it's looking for china it's finding the right one it's the hopeless romantic phrase and uh that's sort of on the surface but when i saw sleepless in seattle it was that device uh the the writerly device of them never meeting really that i thought was so Mm. creative and interesting Mm. i thought it was really really fun i also love that so much of it was done through this kid so much of the action taking Mm. place is done through him and i think probably if we wanted to be psychoanalytical about it it's probably deep down just wanting a cool dad yeah. <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. like that's really it. Like he's just so good with Jonah in so many ways. And there's yeah. so many scenes about how good he is and the way he speaks to Jonah. Yeah. <laughs> almost like an adult or an adult who's just not quite there yet, as opposed to a baby or a child. I assume Nora Ephron had kids at this point or she'd had little kids in the past anyway, because there's like there's something I love so much about the exchange because A, they're showing us that Tom Hanks's character, Sam Baldwin, has a healthy sexuality. Because there's, and also, okay, so there's a scene where he and Jonah are brushing their teeth together, <laughs> which is so cute and reminds me of in Mad About You, how they were also often like in the bathroom brushing their teeth together using their one sink. Like 90s intimacy was all about having someone to brush teeth with. And Jonah's like, so if you got a girlfriend, I guess you're going to have sex. And he's like, I certainly hope so. And she's like, when you have sex, like, don't women, they, like, scratch up your back, right? And he's like, where did you get this from? And Joan is like, Jed's got cable. <laughs> Which just feels like such a real exchange totally. that you would have with your kid. And that, like, in the 90s, this feels like a very 90s parenting thing. The only explanation you need for why is your child making this fairly obvious allusion to basic instinct is Judd's got cable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I love that other line where he says, I'm not going to go to New York and meet some woman who could be a crazy sick lunatic. Didn't you see Fatal Attraction? And he says, no, you wouldn't let me. (laughs) (laughs) I love the way that, that Sam interacts with Jonah and even just like with how it opens with the way Sam talks about the death of the mother and the the Mm. sickness. It's everything he says to to say excuse me everything he says to jonah is beautiful even when jonah's being a shit um which is a couple of times to his girlfriend Mm -hmm. who is bad only because her laugh is a little annoying yeah well that's how you write an unsuitable woman for the main character in a 90s movie you're like don't worry she laughs real loud so it can never be her laugh wasn't as obnoxious as i remembered it being no it wasn't when i was watching i'm like that's it's not her laugh it's just that she laughs too often right like she laughs at things that aren't that funny which isn't a character flaw it's just that's just who she is i just remember thinking like oh this this doesn't seem that bad yeah, she actually seems to like Sam quite a lot and is very nice. Yeah, and I also like that they have her know about baseball because if they wanted to really sideline her as a character, she'd be like, what is a baseball? Although like in, in um, The Parent Trap, which we just talked about last week, the, mm-hmm. the foil is almost camping. Do you like camping? And she's yes. like, I went camping one time. And it's like, we don't know that, that Meg Ryan likes camping. But, you know, I'm sure she does. Yeah. Speaking of the thing where it's like this is about people who are about to 
who like it's not about like the actual love it's about the lead up to the love i like how much that reveals about what everyone is going through like it's really interesting to see that like jonah jonah says point blank at some point he's like gonna go meet his new mom does he say does he say that yeah to the cab driver so a lot to deal with that's a hard line to pull off i think that kid comes very close to doing it it reminds (laughs) me of how like when people who talk about being like addicted to porn or addicted to particular kind of drugs it was like never the porn or the drugs it was the pursuit of those things that did it for mm. them and this movie is like all about the these people's pursuits and this yeah. kid wants a new mom meg ryan wants someone who's not boring and mm-hmm. who believes in magic and bill pullman wants someone who loves him for who he is <laughs> so sweet oh your face <laughs> it's so sweet i gotta say i'm gonna spoil the my answer to the question bill pullman is to me totally the daddy in this movie <laughs> i also feel like this is so deeply a movie about being in your 30s this is like 30 something the movie because you can tell that like (laughs) to quote Jonah Ryan the characters in this movie are ripe fruit and I am a sex wasp (laughs) Um, (laughs) like because Meg Ryan you're like oh yeah you're ready to get married and that's why you're engaged to Walter Mm. you know who you're like a kind of trying to want to get married to a little bit and Tom Hanks like you know, he doesn't love being on the radio, but he does take his son's suggestion and is like, yeah, I am ready to have, like, a woman around. Like, I don't want to be, like, two dudes living in a houseboat anymore. <laughs> it's interesting coming off of just watching When Harry Met Sally right before this movie mm-hmm. uh, was thinking about something in the... I don't know when we stop doing this or if we still do this. Uh, this notion that we have to be married. Like, we have to... Yeah, you have to get married, and this movie does it too. Which is, you know, you're more likely to get killed in a terrorist attack than being a woman getting getting married over the age of forty. That line comes up yeah. a couple of times mm. in this film, <laughs> and there's this like urgency for the woman to be married for the sake of being married, and there's the urgency for Sam to be married because his son needs a mom. Mm-hmm. I guess it's a, a trope of the, the of the romantic comedy. Like in order to make it work, you have to this the marriage just is the sign that we've sealed the deal it's the finish line at the end of the sprint yeah romantic comedies are so, are so interesting and i think they they do tend to op- i mean they have to operate on the premise that like one person is by definition incomplete yeah in order to have in order to have that fulfillment and also there's the just the notion of of the wedding the the pomp and circumstance right it's the metal stand it's the uh it's the it's the bridal dress it's like everybody dressed you know to the nines in the church or the the, wherever we're at getting married in the park this movie obviously doesn't have the big wedding scene but that that's what they put in our minds yeah the other thing i found really interesting about both of these movies is this is this like super weird like old money wealth that everybody kind of has yes yeah Yeah. (laughs) And and when harry met sally it's that they're in New York in the 1980s and they're in their like 30s, early 30s. And the parties they go to are like big ballroom dance things. And in this movie, these people are late 30s and they are shopping for China at Tiffany's. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. I'm like, who are, like, and they don't even live in New York. <laughs> like, they live in Baltimore. And they're staying at the plaza. And you're like, what does Walter do that he can casually stay at the plaza for just like a spur of the moment getaway? Maybe he has Hilton points. I have no idea how any of that works. (laughs) 
in particular, like the pre Great Recession relatability of affluence in mm. in movies and media, like and how it seemed like aspirational in the '90s as opposed to crushing. Totally. And like Gossip Girl was like the last they they're talking about it with this like reboot is like how they're trying to like integrate like so, like social and political issues in a way that like Gossip Girl didn't. LOL. Gossip Girl, I think, is like the last piece of media where the people are like just like brazenly unrelatable, but still enjoyable in one way or another. And even so was I just saw someone mm-hmm. talking on, on Twitter about about how in retrospect, like New Girl is so funny, but like it's the whole thing is still based on the premise for it being so relatively new as of the past 10 years. It's still a will they won't they thing, which just feels mm-hmm. incredibly, incredibly dated, even though like Sleepless in Seattle, I got God damn, it's almost what 35 years old <laughs> I was gonna say it's like a pretty recent movie but it's not at all <laughs> it's younger than you therefore it's new <laughs> any family that David Hyde Pierce is playing a character in um you know you're dealing with you know at their poorest is upper upper middle class and at their best is staying at the plaza he's got a freaking <laughs> piano in his office he does you know? <laughs> And a harp, and I, so of course they're hinting that he works in music, but I would love it if they were like, no, actually he's in the math department. <laughs> I only caught this this time, he's a conductor, because when she what? blasts in and moves her hand, she knocks over his wand, and it sort of goes like towards him. Oh, wow. That's so cool. He should have a happy marriage. We should have a sequel about that. <laughs> he just fucks a lot. <laughs> In my head, he was always a psychiatrist with just very expensive tastes because of the way she uses that scene with him to go in and say, did you just know, was it magic when you met your, you know, your wife, whatever. He is very much like a therapist in that he doesn't really say much to her at all. And she resolves the problem on her own just by being in the room with him. Yeah. He's like, thank you for not going to my brother, Frazier. (laughs) (laughs) It speaks so much to her character, though, right? Which is like this whole obsession with Sam is her just working her shit out. Yeah. I don't Who knows? Maybe something great will happen. But I don't give this relationship a long time because it seems like Mm. she's just working her stuff out actively and recognizes in this guy all these signifiers these things that she's missing in one way or another like again like someone who believes in magic someone who knows what Dom Perignon is maybe like wasn't that is that part of the yes which I was saying isn't it great that like I think this comes out like three years after misery which also has like a Dom Perignon related climax (laughs) It's like, that's the champagne for messy climaxes. (laughs) But, you know, she is in this person, like, imagining... She has a one-sided relationship with this imagination of this person. And I I really love that about her, because I have absolutely been there many, many times. But also, like, this is a much more common experience now. I feel like the internet makes sort of falling in love or, like, developing at least intense feelings for someone in a parasocial way is, like, extremely common at this point. Yeah. Yeah, I thought that was... The parasocial thing was so interesting because I I always kind of have that running joke of, like, podcasts I listen to where I'm like, oh, these two people talking are my best friends in the world. They don't even know me. And uh, right. and I love them, and they they mow the lawn with me every Saturday or whatever. Yeah. It's really funny this this notion of all of these thousands of women writing letters to Sam, 
through this radio station because they all fell in love with with him on the radio and his son but this movie just kind of dismisses that like women who write to serial killers in prison like this notion that though they're just all crazy not even thinking about it. and then we zoom in on one yeah and but annie's not crazy she's like uniquely not crazy she's not crazy it's funny there's a proto facebook thing happening too here right like the her mm. initial looks into him are basically using the baltimore sun's lexus nexus as facebook in 1993 to like kind of stalk somebody you sort of have an interest in mm. which seems like it's not crossing the line but then once you hire the private investigator that seems to be stepping right, right, right. slightly far. <laughs> like, as a journalist, she could just go knock on his door when he's home or call him, whichever, and be like, hello, I am a journalist. Can I talk to you about this crazy situation? And then you have a conversation and you do the story and then you end the professional relationship and you're like, hey... Remember that time I was a journalist? It's kind of like that story of that journalist who fell in love with Martin Shirecki. Shirelli? Is that is that right? Did I say his name? Shirelli? Shirelli? I I don't know. Anyway, you know. The guy who bought that Wu-Tang record. We all call him that motherfucker. But yeah, I forgot that story. Right, because she was covering that case, or she had written about him before. Right. Yeah, his, his legal kerfuffles yeah i mean i'm sure it happens a lot because of it capturing like the parasociality of relationships pre-social media mm-hmm. it's fascinating but there's you know between that story which came out a couple months ago and the story of the woman who recently uh, sarah you probably missed this because you're smartly avoiding twitter right now but there was a woman who was like you know life is too short i'm gonna go see this guy who i love who like i had like one or two experiences with and i'm gonna like do it publicly and i'm gonna let you all know how it's going and it Ooh, don't do that it didn't go it didn't go well it and sad you know but like those those two have alternative universe sleepless in seattle storylines like those two are like other ways it could have gone in the in the ant-man multiverse (laughs) (laughs) it's a curious hypothetical too because he has this relationship with victoria and then there's annie and victoria is such a known commodity like victoria she lives near him they work in i don't know if they have this they work for the same company but i think they work in the same field in architecture they're working for the same lady on mm-hmm. her and they're like i love this lady by the way who sam is her architect and she she's like i called my mother in las vegas i said mother turn <laughs> on the radio that is my architect <laughs> Yeah, she's also she's also blank check signing on to six weeks extra labor, collective labor of the construction force so that she can fit in the right kind of refrigerator. I like the coin flip of taking like known commodity versus somebody that you think you have magic, magic with. <laughs> or just who you don't have any regard for, but who your son really likes, actually. That's interesting. Well, and his regard for her there's the whole scene in the airport when he takes victoria to the airport and and then he sees annie get off the plane and he looks at Mm. her and he falls instantly in love because she's beautiful and uh that's kind of the running through line for him is this lady's really hot like that's his (laughs) magic and he remembers her from his joe versus the volcano lifetime (laughs) (laughs) we also have like a, a really great appearance by gabby hoffman in this yes 
She's so wonderful. She doesn't have a lot of speaking lines, but every time she's on screen, she's always great. And she gives this, she gives Jonah a lot of wisdom. She like passes on a lot of wisdom, teaches him about the Beatles and stuff. She's the one who says basically that part of his attraction to who's the woman who's not Annie. Sorry, we just said her name. Victoria. To Victoria is that they knew each other in a past life. No, he and Annie knew each other in oh, a past Oh, he and life. Annie. Okay, it yeah. is he and Annie. Great, because I was going to say that doesn't, it kind of applies Gabby to Gabby Hoffman is all about Annie. Right, yeah. They knew each other in a past life and they're, the reason why they uh, they get along is because their hearts are trying to refind each other, which is so great. This yeah. is the wisdom from a child. Well, she's a very New York child, Gabby Hoffman. She, uh-huh. so she speaks like- in acronyms. <laughs> I love her abbreviations so much. I think my new favorite line in this film is when her father is, after Jonah's yeah. gone to New York, and her father's like, tell us where he went. She says, N-Y. What does that mean? No way. It's like, that's N-W. I just, I really love that exchange so much. Everyone yeah. in this movie is so well off that a kid can get a plane ticket and no one notices. Like, it's just so... <laughs> It's a real ice storm situation. Oh, <laughs> all of this pre-9-11 stuff where you can just walk somebody to their gate. And see someone getting off a plane and fall in love with them after 9-11. No falling in love at the airport. Only pat down. Also pre-internet where you could actually be super wealthy as like this really successful travel agent family which is really amazing. Yeah, classic. The last travel agents I saw in a movie uh, are my absolute favorites are the ones who are played by um, Fred Willard and Catherine O'Hara in uh, Waiting for Guffman. Oh, yeah. Can we can we talk about this scene that you brought up er- earlier, Jeffrey, where Rita Wilson is describing... Yeah. She's describing the movie and and the read on the scene for me is much more abrasive than it used to be. Can you talk, can you talk about that? I... I always think about tears of nostalgia and this scene with Rita sort of defines it for me. She, oh, who's her character? Uh, Susie. Hmm. Susie starts crying and talking about a movie, which is which is not unusual. But but there's something about watching something you're familiar with or listening to a song you're familiar with or having an experience mm. that you remember being something very indelible to you as a child or as a young adult or uh, whatever. And then she's having that reaction. And I get that reaction now when I watch mm. this movie, you know, so for yeah. all of its faults and flaws and how it feels sort of unrelatable in a lot of ways, it's super relatable to me because I watched this so much in the early 90s. Yeah. And so whenever I get to that scene, I find it. Uh, I, that I find a, a connection to her. But I, I like all the details where she can't quite remember, but none of it is important. And it's a very Nora Ephron thing to have a character say a thing and then immediately question hmm. some mundane point. You know, duh, Meg Ryan does it later in this film when she's like, uh, oh, I think he was from Duluth. Duluth? Where is that? Where is Duluth? <laughs> and they, uh, North Dakota, I think. But uh, there's this the same thing where she's like, yeah, Deborah Kerr. Is it Carr or Kerr? I love this. <laughs> I love these moments because none of that is important, but you find it important in the moment to get yeah. the details just right. It makes these people feel like real people and also friends who you would like to have. This movie came out, I think, the year after A League of Their Own, and it has Tom Hanks, Bill Pullman, and Rosie O'Donnell who is just mm. so wonderful in this. Like, I just love, I love her in this. 
They're all part of the former Reiner Mafia. Well, there you go. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, if only David Lander were in this one, too. <laughs> <laughs> that would be fantastic. I find this response of Tom Hanks and Richard Garber so interesting because they then kind of make fun of her and they're like fake crying about the dirty dozen and like they're sort of just talking about like the most sort of absurd masculine moments from the movie and they're like fake crying about it or whatever and Trini Lopez yeah and it's it's like kind of joking or whatever but it's also really funny and it's it's intense because you're watching them make fun of her to her face and she has like a little bit of a sense of humor about it which is kind of a nice redeeming part but it's it's like an interesting juxtaposition against Sam because Sam despite being this way and making fun of her in this way is someone who has also attracted the attention of a bunch of women by accidentally being vulnerable on a national stage oh yeah good point you know like i don't think he knows that about himself like no. that the thing that people no. find interesting is that he was accidentally vulnerable once uh, i feel like tom hanks was the John Cusack of the early 90s. <laughs> and we, we talked recently when we talked about Gross Point Blank about like what is the John Cusack phenomenon? Because John Cusack was the John Cusack of the late 90s. By which I mean like Mr. Romantic Comedy, like throw any script at him and he'll make it pretty much work. Mm. And if you give him a good script, something really great will happen. I feel like it's like in a way that both of them are like the most acceptable face of patriarchal masculinity. Yeah. And ta- and they like they still totally are that, but they're like they're having as many feelings and as they're allowed to and being as vulnerable as, as they can get away with, like as models of men in America. It feels like Nora Ephron is really going after that point too, that I think she's aware of that and is trying to make that clear, but she's not driving a stake into the heart of that type of masculinity, that's that self unaware masculinity. Mm-hmm. She's simply teasing at it and and then playing it off as in like it's still kind of in the world of like uh, men will be men like hopefully they'll get better you know i don't feel like by the end of when harry met sally that harry burns has actually learned anything about what he's done and then in the same case that i feel like by the end of this movie i still think tom hanks is still thinking about i'm gonna get laid this weekend six (laughs) six girls in college maybe seven (laughs) (laughs) and i think Nora efron is teasing at that a little bit, but I, I I don't think she's really strongly critiquing it as maybe a, a character flaw. Yeah. I'm basing this entirely on heartburn, but like Nora Ephron is a woman who has had smart and caring men laugh in her face for her vulnerability. Mm. And like that scene, I felt that scene in a, in a much bigger way than I mm. think before for whatever reason. And just like, yeah, just watching Rita Wilson take it in. I was like, ugh. Maybe that- we all have higher standards for how we should be treated by people who love us. And, and this is a massive sign of growth. It's kind of a bummer, too, because you love those guys yeah. as well. You want those guys to be your friends, but you're just like, nah, guys. Yeah. yeah. Victor. <laughs> <laughs> Don't do that. It's not cool. Sarah, you you'd said something. I don't know if it was related to this, but you said you had something Goodfellas related. Is that was that part of this conversation? And I was just thinking of that. Does it have to do with her, our our friend Nora? <laughs> it does. Okay, because I was noticing, I believe that this is the the music that opens the movie where we see Sam and Jonah at Maggie's funeral. And then for a couple scenes after, I think what we're hearing is an arrangement of Stardust. 
And then we hear it being sung by Nat King Cole later on when Sam sees Maggie, his dead wife, played by Carrie Lowell, who really does look like an angel. And also you're like, maybe you don't wear a white dress to a baseball game because you're that is just <laughs> dressing to be remembered as someone gone too soon, honestly. Like, <laughs> wear a fanny pack and a big Cubs shirt because then no one can have a flashback to you looking angelic. You'll just look like someone in a Cubs shirt. <laughs> <laughs> it, it wasn't ghost night at Wrigley, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I was thinking, oh, Stardust. Oh, that was the song that was in Goodfellas. Like, this is one of my favorite, like, scene transitions in all of movies where Henry gets his first pink, she learns his lesson, he doesn't rat on anybody. They open the doors and, like, the whole gang, including Polly, are there and he's like, hey, you broke your cherry! And then they all, like, hug him <laughs> and they freeze frame. And it plays Stardust and then we cut to, like, he's all grown up and he's Ray Liotta and it like just cuts to like just like the young him this is the song that in a Scorsese movie plays as you you begin to imagine like the the start of your ascent when you were young and gorgeous and you were best friends with Joe Pesci and you were holding up truckers all over the place or just having truckers give you their stuff and Alex you were talking recently about a little film you watched called My Blue Heaven yeah, the Bizarro Goodfellas, directed by Nora Ephron, yeah. <laughs> because because her husband wrote Goodfellas, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I wonder if this is just another aspect of that, just like a holdover from like the same household having people like getting up and like, you know, kissing each other goodbye and going to work every day and one of them's making Goodfellas <laughs> and one of them's doing <laughs> romantic comedies. <laughs> Yeah, totally, totally. Yeah, I love the, all the, the overlap, all the places and commonalities with with Rob Reiner and even like with like Penny Marshall in here. Mm -hmm. Like the universe of people that are involved, the universe of people who are in proximity to or Nora Ephron are fucking awesome. And you mm -hmm. see common, you see like commonalities and things like repeat themselves in one way or another. And I love that. Even just like throwing Rob Reiner in this movie, like what a delight that we get to spend <laughs> some time with with Rob Reiner and Nat King Cole and and Harry. Iconic, as we talked about earlier, I feel like yeah. these are all staples of the Nora Ephron universe, and I love that. Yeah, and and I feel like that also speaks to someone's generosity as a filmmaker, you know. And like when Harry Met Sally is great for that reason too. I mean, and that's a Rob Reiner directed film where there are a lot of people in that movie who just are good at what they're doing and just are there to do their thing, you know. Um, and there, and, and that's also a romantic comedy where you feel like it was written with the understanding that like that a that a romantic comedy should exist as a world that you want to be inside of, and that is beautiful and feels abundant in all kinds of ways, and abundant not just in terms of like everyone's always at a fancy restaurant, but also in that like our characters who we want to get together have a lot of good relationships with other people who they can talk to and like figure their shit out with. And I remember as a kid, like, one of the reasons I watched, my mom and I, I think, both watched this movie so much was because it was just such a nice world that these characters got to live in, especially Meg Ryan. Like, she has a really nice house. She's a journalist. She has a good work environment. Her, like, boss slash confidant is Rosie O'Donnell. Her family is really great. Like, her 
parents' house feels like an American girl catalog. Yeah. <laughs> There's something generous about A, having talent around you and knowing what to do with them, and B, knowing that audiences would like to have a world to feel they get to be a part of for a little while and yeah. focusing on making that really beautiful. Like, even just that diner that she stops at where she gets tea. Like, that's a great-looking diner. It's a beautiful little diner. And the people there are fantastic. They're listening to the same radio program she was just listening yeah, yeah. to. <laughs> and they're just as into it with their own opinions about what's happening here. And I think you hit it, Sarah, is the... I don't know if gentleness is the right word, but there, there's something where there's there's a peacefulness to a lot of this movie and there is conflict in the plot in that will they won't they will they get this jonah runs away to new york etc etc there are arguments and such but everything gets resolved by mostly like emotionally mature people Mm. uh, for for the most part and 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 there aren't a lot of movies that do that without being just boring yeah you know like my, my rule of thumb in writing is always like you know in real life you you should always talk to people and work through your problems and be honest with them and, and know what you want and, and ask people for what you want. But in, in writing, you don't ever want to do that. You want to have your characters never do that mm. because we right. need the conflict. And in this, I think people make some mistakes, but but for the most part, like Tom Hanks is a good and understanding father. And Jonah, for as much as he acts out against Victoria, listens to his dad in a way that I think we all wish that kids did yeah. pay close attention to to us as parents i'm not a parent but i'm going to speak for all parents when i say that yeah you know i wonder how much that has to do with the fact that nora efron like found her nora efron success like close to 50 hmm. she was writing actively in the 60s and into the 70s like she she was with bernstein and co-wrote uh, co-write a version of all the president's men that didn't get used but like she and heartburn obviously mm-hmm. came out in the mid the mid 80s which was based on her book but like she wasn't like nora efron like yeah. a voice in these innovative romantic endeavors or like real romantic comedies until she was close to 50 i wonder like how like how much of that the emotional maturity comes from that because Mm. you know my level of emotional maturity now that my hair is almost all white is much different than it was when I was 25 you know (laughs) (laughs) very different scene very measured you wore a younger man's clothes yes although you are wearing the same you're wearing a slipknot (laughs) t-shirt I am wearing a a younger man's shirt but it's not mine (laughs) (laughs) her fiance Walter who is like a lovely allergic kind of dork who I'm sure will get will get snapped up in five to ten minutes after they break off this engagement they're going to New York City for Valentine's Day and so initially when she wrote this letter to Sam which she didn't intend to mail but which Rosie O'Donnell did mail for her she's like we can meet at the Empire State Building at sunset on Valentine's Day like in an affair to remember I can do it because I'll be there with Walter. <laughs> she's like, oh my God, what the hell am I doing? But then she's having dinner with Walter for Valentine's Day. He orders Dom Perignon, Dom Perignon. Dom Perignon. Dom DeLuise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it. She tells him the story. And what's so interesting is that like we don't even see that scene. We just like cut in at the moment where he's kind of been briefed on everything and has to react. 
and what he's saying is like, so he could be there right now. And you're like, oh, Bill, (laughs) (laughs) this is a very like, you know, cut the baby in half kind of moment because it's like he's proving in his reaction to how she's telling him that she has to go find this guy from the radio that like he really does deserve he really is ready to marry someone but just not her because she doesn't really want to marry him that much and it's funny too because I feel like this is the probably the most common well not even the most common but a very common type of marriage which is like good enough it's not bad it's not great it's just like you know these people are decent and they're going to treat each other pretty well and there's also just you know they're probably just going to become like buddies fairly quickly yeah and i love how he handles the situation it's super lovely like he he hears it and he um acknowledges that she's clearly looking for something that he is not and he wants someone who would be excited to to marry him and what does i i sarah you know my memory is shit but like what what exactly is the exchange that he kind of gets a quip in at her which is really cute or or jeffrey do you recall oh yeah well first he says like i don't want to be settled for which is like yeah you shouldn't want that good like this all happens partly because walter is able to like let go with ease like he's just caught in too small of a fish Pullman was on fire by the way because he was just in a league of their own and newsies into which he wandered like an angel and now this I mean like I'm, that's a two year span of movies that's pretty impressive to knock all three of those out in two years yeah and three years after he'd be in Independence Day just killing it is he American Colin Firth Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) Wow. I think you're right. I never would have put that together. But yeah, even to the point where like his head kind of is always at a certain angle, you know? It sure is. (laughs) Yeah, he's like got a slight side smile. Yeah. Just like he can play. He can play sort of handsome, but mostly awkward. And he can do some. I don't maybe he doesn't have like the darker, heavy drama range that Colin Firth with all of the uh, Jane Austen classics or something has but yeah Colin Firth is very brooding I think Bill Pullman could jump into a a lake in a Pride and Prejudice way if he was in like a western adaptation of it yeah is like our western movies our Pride and Prejudices is like that (laughs) is that the binary I love where this has gone (laughs) that's what we were doing in Pride and Prejudice that's what we were doing anarchists just like like expanding the middle of the country exactly you know America is a business and so is cattle driving It sure is. (laughs) It is a truth universally acknowledged that a rancher in possession of a fortune and without a wife must want one or something. I started off strong and I couldn't pull it off. (laughs) Yeah. But if the see future Nora Ephron film, you've got mail for more on Pride and Prejudice. Don't take my word for it. So being a person who is tempered by this, by loving this movie a lot, like how do you feel this movie movies around it Efron Reiner like how did that all how did those people influence you I think for me it was in writing characters like as I as I got older I I started writing more fiction and play I started doing playwriting obviously before podcasting because I was doing this in the 90s (laughs) in writing characters and writing dialogue I my my brain would always flash back I didn't know it at the time when I was watching these movies but my, my brain would always flash back to these characters and the in the way that that Nora Ephron writes 
I think it's not whimsical, but it's just kind of like a lighthearted realism. She has a lot of like mundanity in mm-hmm. dialogue. Like I said earlier, like a character questioning what they had to say. And maybe I should credit Meg Ryan a little mm-hmm. bit with that too, because she's so incredible at, at that type of personality in these films. Um, but I, I love the cleverness. I like I like the banter, and I like I like the weightiness of what she's dealing with. Magic in this film. Yeah. I like the weightiness of finding the one true one, the the soulmate, uh, the M F O E M F E O, made for each other, uh, type of type of notion that is of the highest stakes in a romantic comedy. Mm-hmm. That is the most high stakes. That is the life or death. And so to have such high stakes, and then to also have these these little moments of of really just reveling in character the scene that we referenced earlier with rita wilson and and then the boys sort of laughing it off um you know it's it's a little shady watching that now the way they kind of like put her ideas you know throw her ideas aside but um that's good character work and i think it's really really fascinating so that's what always came back to me the other thing that i failed to mention earlier at the very start when you asked me that alex was I was a kid who talked on the phone a lot in late in the early nineties when I got into mm. high school. I got my own phone line, Ooh. my own phone landline. Hell yeah. So I was a lot of like late night talking to my friends and just watching movies while on the phone. Like I would spend a whole Saturday afternoon doing that. There's also something about the scene where she's listening to the radio program in the car. Because mm. I also drove when I went to college, uh, it was three and a half hours away from where I grew up. And so the first couple, you know, first year of college, I spent a lot of late nights driving back on a Friday night to go back home for the weekend. And um, you would just try and find any type of like fucking love lines or whatever, you know, just anything you could find to listen to good radio that wasn't like political talk yeah. or something, which is hard to find in Texas. Well, and AM radio too, I feel like it's such a minefield of like scary right wing radio. Like every time I'm desperate enough to try it, it quickly becomes like, someone talking about how we should all be able to open carry guns at the zoo yeah right right yeah and you want to avoid that kind of stuff and there's something really um, it's emotional swaddling to have like a beautifully voiced radio host like in the late of night Mm -hmm. that, that kind of carries you through a long overnight or late night drive again parasocial relationship i suppose but uh, there's also something to to that. It's it's a it's a bedtime story. It's something to kind of keep you going and keep you intrigued. And just this idea of you're like alone at night. There's nothing else, no other sign of life. And somehow, invisibly through the air, this voice from thousands of miles away is connected to anybody who wants to hear it. Yeah, mm. and the intimacy that feels possible in that moment. And also, like I think there's something about how consuming things via the internet makes us aware of how many other people are consuming them and what they think of it because it's like people don't just watch shows anymore they also like they recap and they react and they're like can you believe what happened on monday night or whatever and and like i feel like the bachelor and the bachelorette exist partly because they're so fun to watch in like an organized way and to do like fantasy leagues and like have theme nights at bars about it because they're like they're very boring they're not very good tv but like they're good as sports i think they seem like a better fandom than they are like a lone viewing experience and i think there's there's so much neat stuff that becomes possible through that but this movie also just it would work really well 
to teach like what were the technologies of 1993 and how can we see people reaching these teeny tiny tentacles hmm. toward each other through space and technology and this is like a kind of a baby step in that journey and also an era that that yeah this movie makes me nostalgic for in a lot of ways and just the specialness of like finding someone talking on the radio just because you happen to turn the dial that way or the thing which i still do with my mom of calling someone to tell them that something is on the radio right now <laughs> you know so like in terminator 2 in 1997 like the world is vaporized right and like there could be a companion movie that has nothing to do with the Terminator, but it just has to do with like the last good day before everything was vaporized. Mm. Like that would be cool. And like this movie takes place in 1993 and like the eternal September is what 19, it was in 1993, mm. which is like when everyone got online. Mm. Right. And like, cause like the eternal September is like the whole, the whole theory that it's like every September people on the internet would be terrible. Cause it's when everyone would get on the internet for the first time in college. And then by October, uh-huh. they would all have learned the rules and stop being terrible. But like after September of 1993, when everyone could get on the internet, everyone would be terrible all the time. And we've been in that eternal September since. So like this movie is the last good day before Skynet wow. takes over. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, I feel like, that. When you could be like, did you hear the DJ? And it's quaint that you both know the same DJ that you're talking about. Maybe a couple other people know about it. Like, that's lovely. The internet kind of brings out all of the personalities that are already sort of there. Mm. Right. So, like, if this is a movie where you have a main character who is stalking someone, which is essentially what's happening, the internet makes all of that easier. Mm-hmm. Right. And the internet just simply requires you to have it requires you to have more of a filter on yourself right there, mm-hmm. there are no like you can get information so much easier you can act more quickly on mm-hmm. whatever idea it is that you have whether it's stalking or whether it's just i should buy this new um drill driver from uh, amazon <laughs> because i'm working on a carpentry project at home but i was just thinking about the there is almost like a discord server happening in that diner she goes into because <laughs> yeah. the two waiters there are both having two very different conversations about what this man is mm-hmm. you know and one woman is convinced that he's super handsome and beautiful and just this perfect man and i'll line up to to go out with him and the other one's like uh you should check his freezer <laughs> so, <laughs> uh, uh, which which i really love so yeah i you know there, there's some really horrible things that can happen once we all as a as a society get on the internet in a few years after this film but uh, there's also something really amazing that I'm like, oh, I love that this conversation has like diversified more than just, oh, it's magic. Yeah. Right, right. There's something so offbeat, I think in a good way, about this idea that all these women are going to fall in love for the way this bereaved man talks about his dead wife. Like the idea that women are drawn to men being like aloof and obsessed with someone else. <laughs> <laughs> That's one lens. And another lens is that it's like, you know, a moment of really genuine emotion and vulnerability. And I think that both are true. But yeah, I also feel like there's kind of a respite from the 80s in these movies. Because, like, you don't hear pop music that's from before 1964 anyway. You can see the kind of tug of war happening between technology getting more and more of a stake in dating which obviously has continued, and Tom Hanks, who, like, hasn't dated since the Carter administration, and is like, you know, you, like, meet a girl at a laundromat and uh, you ask her out. 
things have changed while he was away and like a lot of getting back on the scene is him dealing with that and and his son being like the girl asks you out now and then he does get asked yeah. out and it's very stressful um and he's like i don't think i could let a woman pay for dinner we can see the plate tectonics of dating culture moving and grinding against each other in this movie it's so it's so interesting how quickly things things changed because movies that had pop soundtracks used to be like really like clueless is a great is a great idea it's like it's like we are a kids movie we get it Mm -hmm. like this is the music that kids are listening to this is contemporary and at some point that became a standard for all movies yeah and i just think it would be so weird if this movie had like songs from like aerosmith's get a grip like it would be like i'm trying to think of like what was coming out at the time like it would be so weird if like they queued up like a late career bon jovi song loving an elevator over the credits yeah yeah Yeah. and then also just like as soon as like as soon as companies realized that they could squeeze in like the song of the year or several songs of the year like make extra money in the soundtrack things changed in a really really big way to be the daddy i i think the easiest is the most obvious and i have a hard time veering off of sam being the daddy Mm -hmm. but honestly i think i think i could make a decent case for jessica yeah do you know what i mean like there is real like if we just use instead of the daddy if you just said dad energy like she has dad energy in this right like she's she's teaching Jonah she's teaching Jonah about the Beatles mm-hmm. um, she's also very much like here let me tell you how let me tell you how computer databases work in airplanes um, yeah you definitely want to do this here I'll put a note in your profile she's taking care of him all the way through she kind of just knows everything like yeah. she takes charge she does the thing she's teaching him but she's also a little bit like I'm gonna do this I know you have a science fair coming up uh, I'm super excited to work on this with you I'm kind of gonna <laughs> do all of it for you and just explain what I'm doing while I'm doing it that's a that's super profound dad mm. energy that that Jessica has um and I really appreciate it coming from uh from young Gabby Hoffman I was friends with a lot of those girls when I was a kid and I'm very grateful for the lifelong impact that that they had I would double not double down but I would say with your first instinct it's nice and very rare on the show when we have a dad who also happens to be a very strong contender to be the daddy and I would agree with what you say about Sam um as you were saying earlier on the show it's like you know I wish that my dad knew how to talk to me the way that he knows how to talk to Jonah mm-hmm. um and he had sex with seven or eight women in college so you know he's a he's a fiend Mary Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's still Walter, but I would also say Rosie O'Donnell's character is also a daddy in this movie because she's like a good newspaper person. And also like she's the friend and I am lucky enough to have friends like this in my life who is very real with you and is like, what, what are you doing? What's going on with you? And yet who also is able to understand where you're coming from and sometimes encourage you in your more intense ideas when they when they believe that they are really actually good for you and when you are faltering. Mm. The fact that she's able to do both of those things is like, that's what you need. 
and also just everything she does and says is funny she's so wonderful to watch i love it well jeffrey do you are there things you're doing lately that you're extra excited about that people should look at sure i i I do lots of things that i get uh, up and down excited about i think my favorite thing that i have started in the last year and sarah you did you did an episode with us towards the end of 2020 uh was uh, random number generator horror podcast number nine the overly long titled hmm. uh podcast i do with cecil baldwin who also works on welcome to night fell with me um it was just a fun thing to start with a friend during a pandemic and we st- we're still doing it every single week and i've seen almost 60 horror films in the last Ooh, wow. nine months and uh it's been a blast i've learned so much about myself it's turned into some weird form of therapy what's been a recent favorite jeffrey uh i really i finally uh, for the first time saw night of the living dead and i i absolutely loved it and then i just watched i think the hardest movie i had to watch i just watched last week and it's called raw Mm. oh yeah it's a french film from 2016 uh i really enjoyed it there's so much I didn't like about the movie, but I, as a whole, I just got really excited about that film. And Cam was another one from 2018 oh, yeah. that's on Netflix that I thought was so, so different and so ingenious and really interesting and compelling. So yeah, I'm just I don't know. It's uh, it's been a really fun thing. I get excited every week to watch a movie and have somebody to talk about it with. And uh, I got really excited to finally watch something that was not scary. Uh, I did have a stalker, but uh, but all in all, it was exciting to to get to watch something not scary this week. Uh, but yeah, that's that's been my favorite thing I've been doing. Yeah, no, it's a it's a wonderful show, and I feel like there's something really nice about just as you know that this is the why we're here. Also, just having a movie as a container for you to come together in an ongoing conversation with somebody and just kind of also just talk about being alive it's really great (laughs) yeah absolutely i agree nice well thank you so much jeffrey it's been awesome it's been really nice to talk with you about this and it's nice to meet someone who was a teenager watching this movie twice in the theater that's like a very awesomely unique thing to hear about somebody (laughs) (laughs) so great oh it's a delight i'm so happy to have done this thank you all In the wee small hours of the morning While the whole wide world is fast asleep You lie awake and think about the boy And never ever think of care
All right, everybody. Thank you so, so much for listening to this episode of You Are Good. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick for producing this episode. You can find Carolyn's music at carolynkendrick.com. Carolyn's uh, playing a bit more. She's very excited to be playing music right now. So you can find and support her there. Thank you to Jeffrey for being on this episode. It was so wonderful to have you. You are an absolute sweetheart. And I'm so glad that you are here to be a sweetheart in this company. (laughs) It's really nice to have you. Thank you to Fresh Lesh for the beats. Thank you, you who is listening for being a part of this whole thing. Uh, You can find us on Twitter and Instagram. You can find me on TikTok, Alex Steed. I think that's all the information I have for you right now for this week's show. We're so glad that you're here. Thank you for being good with us. You are good.